1: you can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
2: Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
3: Well, they were just catastrophic injuries. And it's really amazing that all three didn't die that night. One, Cheryl, as far as we know, was dead on arrival at Mackenzie Willamette Hospital. The staff there was clearly not expecting this. They hear a car honking and somebody runs out. And there's a mom or a woman standing by a car saying, Somebody shot my kids. So the doctors are dispatched out there and nurses and sort of horrified to find one, two, and then a third kid and they had been shot in the chest um, any doctor would tell you that there's just a few more catastrophic injuries especially for a young child than to have gunshots to the chest and um, I remember Diane at one of her news conferences saying uh, if I had shot my kids would I had not have done a good job of it and I remember thinking not too long after that you did a tremendous job if that was what you wanted to do you did a great job
0: The story of the crime begins on the evening of May 19th, 1983. Diane Downs and her three children are riding along Mohawk Road. Dana Timms was a reporter for the Oregonian at the time, a correspondent for Eugene County. He describes the area around the shooting.
3: It's a really pretty area. It's kind of a gateway to a couple of different river valleys. The Mackenzie River is really the defining water feature that comes down through there with a couple of other branches going off of it a lot of uh, farming activity and ranches up there, some cattle, a lot of grass, very green, very emerald. It's very pretty. There were probably homes spaced out or maybe every half mile or so, sort of the the way that you would have anticipated homesteaders, you know, 150 years before that, everyone having enough land to do whatever they wanted to do.
0: Diane was on the road at 10 p.m. on a school night with her three young children. According to Diane, her kids liked to sightsee and they would just drive for enjoyment. She stands by her story even now, after several decades in jail. She claims she saw a stranger in the road who flagged her down, and she stopped to help.
3: She was, you know, portraying herself as a good Samaritan, but even if you're going to do that, my sense would be, maybe you just stay on the road and you roll your window down a little bit and say, what's the problem? But she pulled off the road, turned off the car, had the keys in her hand, and gets out of the car to go talk to this guy. It just seemed like a natural thing to do.
0: According to Diane, the man then attacked her and her family in an attempt to steal a car, a quote-unquote carjacking gone wrong.
3: In her telling, this guy wants the car, so what does he do? It's dark out. The Headlights are shining forward. He walks up to the car, leans in, and fires five to seven bullets at sleeping kids.
0: The man then apparently fled, and Diane, having sustained a gunshot wound to her forearm, wrapped the arm in a towel and drove to a nearby hospital. But according to a witness, she wasn't exactly driving with a sense of urgency.
3: One thing that has struck me then, and has has always struck me, was the testimony of somebody who was driving behind her on Old Mohawk Road, as she was heading toward the hospital, and she claimed she had driven as fast as she could, um, and yet her arm was wrapped in a towel, in a perfectly folded towel that had been placed, obviously, in her car for some reason. So she was, as a clinical narcissist, which was one of the three personality disorders that was uh, diagnosed for her, the driver of that car said, we were going five to seven miles an hour. I would have passed, but there was a double yellow line and it was just pretty dark and curvy out there. So I didn't feel safe doing that, but identified the Arizona plate that hadn't been changed yet. And again, you know, that's not enough on its own, but it was just a very, very telling point to me in terms of just the logic of the situation. It's not that far from where the shooting occurred to Mackenzie Willamette Hospital where she ended up with the kids.
0: what is the distance from the location of the shooting to the hospital?
3: Oh, it's, it's, I'm, I'm sure it's less than two miles. And a lot of that's rural, so you can, you can move along at a pretty good clip if you need to get there.
0: Diane's brother, James, maintains that Diane had an excuse for driving slowly and that she still made it as quickly as possible. When I spoke to him about it, he was quick to point out that the witness who saw her driving wasn't behind her the entire way to the hospital.
3: So one question I did have is why was she driving her vehicle very slowly on the way to the hospital mm-hmm. after the incident?
4: Real hard to describe that one. Basically, um, I think Inman was his name, um, said he was following her on Old Mohawk Road. The following period took place for about two, maybe three miles, right? Um, So the shooting was two miles away from where, and he followed her on curvy roads for two miles. Mm -hmm. You must remember, really truly must remember, she was just shocked. She just had her child in the back seat was gurgling with blood because she got shot in the lung, right? Mm -hmm. Her lung had collapsed and she couldn't breathe. And she had to maybe tend with the child in the back seat and get her to roll over so she would stop gurgling. Her other boy in the back seat had been shot in the chest and he was also in the midst of dying. Mm -hmm. She was maybe reaching over to the child that was laying on the floor and saying, Cheryl, 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 Cheryl. I wasn't there, right? right? But I mean, it's like, uh, maybe She was obviously wrapping her arm with a towel. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. I yeah. can't really talk about the towel. I don't have any idea. But I, I don't know why she was driving slow. But if you can imagine... Well, Put
2: yourself in that situation.
4: Being shot. Right. And it's, he He only followed her for about... I don't really know, be honest with you. Two or three miles. But I know it wasn't a long ways. And yes, indeed, she was going slow. And she almost drove off the road and things... But then, what's important from my point of view is that when she got to that stop sign where she went right and he went left, that it's a 15-minute drive to the hospital from that point, right? She did it in 10 minutes. Hmm. So, yes, on the windy road, she was driving slow, right? Tending to her kids that had just been murdered and shot, right? And But once she got to the open road and where all the kids were, I'm going to use the word stabilized, um, in her mind, then she went to the right and she drove to the hospital and she got there and faster than the police could
3: get there the next day. I think she was saying it took something like 20 minutes in her telling to get there, it just wouldn't have taken that long, especially if you were hurrying along with your shot kids.
0: No matter which version you believe, in the end, when Diane arrived at the hospital, the injuries to her children were catastrophic. Cheryl, her seven-year-old daughter, was dead on arrival. Danny, three, was paralyzed, and Christy, eight, had suffered a stroke due to massive blood loss and was unable to speak. James recalls the moment he heard about the shootings. Let's go back to the night of the shooting. How did you hear the news? You're in California. (laughs) I want to know your experience. What happened that night?
4: Um, I was sleeping. My dad called me at 2.30 in the morning and said, your sister has been attacked. She's been shot.
0: I wondered whether or not James believed her ex-husband had anything to do with it. Even when talking about this, James can't resist starting to put the pieces into place to demonstrate his sister's innocence. What Uh, did your mind go to, did you think? uh, Steve, what did you think?
4: um, I didn't think any of that. Um, I really just, I stayed in the moment, and I said, what? <laughs> and my dad said, yeah, your sister's been shot. No, I didn't think anybody. The state actually thought, Steve, that's a really valid question. And Diane says that the state, Doug Welch actually came to her, and he said that um, we, know, we, don't, we know you didn't do this. And Steve has given us three alibis, and none of those three alibis turned out to be any good. So we really want to look at him, but we need you to testify against him. We need you to say it was him so we can do that. And she says, it wasn't him. You know, if it was him, I would be telling you but it wasn't him. I mean, if uh, it was 2.30 in the morning and somebody just attacked my sister. So it's like, I just started thinking about getting up there to be with family. And that's about all, that's all my mind was. Just, you know, I need to go, I need to leave.
0: James also states that Diane was tested for gunpowder residue and none was found, which he also attempts to explain. James has spent years trying to prove Diane's innocence and has a counter-argument for nearly everything that might potentially point to Diane's guilt.
4: The shooter... That killed Cheryl, the shooter that wounded Christy and wounded Danny, and shot my sister. When he was killing the family, he got in her car. The inside of that car was covered with blood spatter. The inside of that car had gunpowder residue. And my sister didn't have any on her. The, The driver's seat was clear or void of any gunpowder residue and blood spatter where the shooter would have been sitting or kneeling when he shot them. And so you come back and you put it all together. It's like, well, she didn't really have the gun, so somebody else did. She didn't have any gunpowder residue on her. Somebody else did. She didn't have any blood spatter on her, even though it was all over the car. So somebody else did.
0: It's worth noting that while Diane tested negative for gunshot residue, or GSR, the bullets were from a 22 caliber gun. We spoke to forensic scientist Jim Pex, who worked on the Diane Downs case. He explains more about the residue test.
5: It's my understanding that the deputy who was, uh, took the initial report at the hospital swabbed her for, for GSR. And uh, at the time... Uh, we would send those to a consulting laboratory for analysis, but in this case, you have to keep in mind that when we talk about swabbing persons' hands for GSR, what you're looking for are two rare earth elements that are not common in nature. One is barium, and one is antimony. These are intentionally placed in the primers of center fire cartridges. A twenty-two is a rim fire. There is no barium and antimony in a rimfire cartridge. So there is nothing to find.
0: Diane also sustained an injury at close range, so it testing her for lead would have been somewhat inconclusive because she was in what's referred to as the lead cloud. Pex explains.
5: Uh, No, that's uh, uh, when I... Weapon is discharged and the bullet exits the barrel. There is a cloud of vaporized gases that contain these trace elements and uh, a little bit of trace element lead. And in center fire casings, you would find your barium and antimony deposited from this cloud. And the fact that she was shot herself, um, you would have found uh, lead on her hands anyway.
0: Despite this, James stands by his theory that Diane was not the shooter that night.
4: Actually, it's a funny thing. There was a picture of Diane at the hospital when she was sitting there. And you notice that it's been destroyed at this point, actually. They destroyed it. And you can notice that her fingers are not full of dirt where she might have buried something. Her, her hands are not clean where she might have washed her hands. Because there's been a lot of theories out there that well she did this, And that she washed up. My sister was shot in the left arm. The common theory out there is that when you get wounded in the left arm, it must be self-inflicted. If you self-inflict your wound, you have um, stippling around um, where the gun was next to your arm. There was no stippling on her arm. And more importantly, when you talk about her left arm being broken, it didn't have a hole in it. She had one inch of bone that was removed from her arm where it shattered her bone. And so if you say, well, she didn't have any gunpowder residue on her because she washed her hands. She didn't have any blood spatter on her because she washed up. Well, it's impossible. If you've ever broken your arm, you would know it would be impossible to move your arm. It's impossible to lift anything with your arm. It's impossible to do anything with your arm especially when you have a one-inch bone shattering. It was not a flesh wound. It was a traumatic, traumatic injury to her arm.
0: Not long after Diane and her children's arrival at the hospital, she became the main suspect. However, no arrests or charges were brought against Diane right away.
3: I think that the press got the impression, after about four or five days, that the police were the ones who were perhaps looking at Diane There hadn't been any other suspects.
0: Police began to gather evidence to build their case. Officers were dispatched to search Diane's Springfield home and look for any potential clues or evidence and found some not so subtle clues that might point to Diane.
3: They did get a break a little bit when they searched Diane's uh, apartment in Springfield and found um, bullets that appeared to have very similar markings on them from the extractor mechanism Uh, in a gun that moves bullets through the chamber. The rifle they found in her apartment was a 22 caliber rifle, but so the bullets were also 22 caliber, but they would also fit into a handgun.
0: After examination, the rifle was determined not to be the same weapon that fired the bullets at the crime scene. The bullets in the rifle, however, had markings as if they had been ejected from another weapon, possibly a pistol, and then loaded into the rifle, Jim Pex explains.
5: We looked under the bed, and there was a a rifle, 22 rifle, under the bed. First thought was, oh, is this a possible murder weapon? And so we uh, seized the rifle, and I took it back to the laboratory after we finished processing. And the rifle had cartridges uh, in the tubular magazine, and there were nine of them. That's a significant number because um, a lot of 22 caliber semi-automatic pistols have nine cartridges in the magazine. And it's not uncommon for people uh, if when they're through shooting and they still have ammunition in the weapon to take it out and uh, maybe use it in, an, in another weapon, which appeared to be the case here, because there weren't any markings on these cartridges that they had worked through the action of the 22 rifle. There were only markings from some other weapon.
0: This wasn't enough to charge Diane with the crime. There was also something else strange about Diane's apartment. It was nearly empty.
3: She had just moved there, but it was very spare, very spartan inside. Beds for the kids. But when police, who went there as soon as they could, looked at the refrigerator, there was nothing there. Nothing to eat. Um, A real shortage of of comfortable and warm, suitable clothes for the kids. I think Diane's closet was probably the best stocked thing in the house, and beside that, no books, nowhere to really sit. Uh, There was a TV because she liked to watch TV, so she was taking care of her her own needs there, but apparently uh, nobody else's were being thought about.
0: Diane's brother, James, offers his own explanation. He believes the lack of possessions was a product of circumstance and not a sign of a bad mother
4: my mom and dad drove to Arizona um, with a pickup truck. And that's sort of, you know, it's, it's part of the state's theory um, is that her house was, she was a bad mother. She had a house in Oregon and there was no furniture in it. There was no food in the refrigerator. Well, my mom and dad lived about, you know, four blocks away. And the kids were always over there because my sister was always working. There was no furniture because they just got there six weeks previous with a pickup truck. They didn't, and her house just burned down four months before that. You Do you know? remember I mean, what
0: she packed up in that pickup?
4: Just personal items. I was not there. Was my mom and dad drove down there and did that. Um, I was in California working. But yeah, I, I did not, I was not there. I just thought it was just a pickup, so you can't have too much. But yeah, there was, her house was very sparse.
0: They did, however, find Diane's journals and letters to a lover in Arizona, which helped paint a picture of who she was and what investigators would later argue could serve as a motive.
3: One thing she had kind of pointed uh, them out, like, hey, I've got all these diaries. Uh, the writings in the first diary were all about this guy in Arizona, long poems she wrote voluminously.
0: The guy in Arizona was Robert Nick Knickerbocker.
3: I did not know
4: Nick existed until the state went to her house the night of the shooting and collected her diary letters. She gave them permission to go to her apartment and get the letters. Or, I'm sorry, to go get um, evidence that might help. I don't know why they'd want to go to her house to get evidence, but they went to her house to get evidence. And some of that evidence was... um, I'll call them diary letters. They weren't really in a diary. They were just handwritten letters.
0: The letters were unmailed, James claims. But there were, according to law enforcement accounts, tons of journals where Diane had written nearly every day about Nick.
4: Basically told Nick, you know, it's like, you know, I wish that you were here. I wish that I was with you. Um, I wish things were different. I want you. You know, I rem, you know, I never read the letters. But they were just love letters, you know, I mean... There's no doubt that they were love letters. And that was their motive.
0: James' theory is that the letters were just a way for Diane to vent privately. And the fact that they were never mailed, he believes, shows that they weren't an act of a woman obsessed with a man, despite the claims to the contrary.
4: Well, I mean, it's it's really just um, a think-about-it situation. It had been six weeks since she left Arizona. She hadn't called him. She hadn't emailed him, there was no email. She hadn't written him, you know, uh, there was letters written to him, but never mailed.
0: It also came out that Nick may have half-heartedly proposed to her at some point.
3: It seemed to go back and forth a little bit. He did, I think, uh, propose, but maybe in kind of a backhanded kind of way and like, well, yeah, sure, that might be interesting. But nothing that would last for more than a a day, perhaps. But when Diane heard that, she was just convinced that, well, he he wants to be with me. And if I just kind of hang in there, I think I can make this work.
0: As for the question of why the relationship with Nick ended, a person she clearly cared for. The belief is that Diane's promiscuity led to her contracting an STD that she later gave to Nick, who subsequently gave it to his wife.
3: He basically had to tell her, I think that... I have this, and you probably have it now. You better get tested. And here's where I got it. And so he had to sort of uh, admit that. And I think his his wife ultimately uh, forgave him. And I think that was kind of a turning point, where it's not that he never saw Diane again or was wasn't physical with her again, perhaps, but it did seem to to mark uh, something of a of a break in their relationship.
0: Even with Diane supposedly over the relationship with Nick. The police still believed he was the motive behind the killing and would eventually push that narrative during Diane's trial. A phone call that apparently took place between Nick and the police didn't help to dissuade them.
4: The motive, yes. I read a police report, and in the police report, it shows a conversation between when the police called him to tell him what had happened. Nick, they says, you know, basically Diane um, and the kids have been shot. And his first words were, I cannot believe she did this for me. I cannot believe she did
3: this for me.
2: Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace.
1: Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: While Diane's children were hospitalized for their injuries, Diane herself was also undergoing surgery for the injuries to her arm. It was during this time that full custody of Diane's children was taken away.
3: So she was initially uh, hospitalized herself, released fairly soon after that, but she still had visitation rights. She was still the, the, the mom with 100% right to go see her kids, but we learned at some point that Christy's heart rate was, was just spiking on the monitor when her mom came into the room. Again, some of this is hindsight, but you now know that she sees the The person who killed her sister and shot her and her brother is right in the room with her. That'd be a little little scary also. The county authorities moved to limit Diane's access to the kids after hospital staff were reporting that Christy appeared to be very traumatized when her mom was in the room. And I think that within four or five days, the police, not having any solid leads on any of their suspects, were feeling that we need to limit access that Diane had to her kids for for their safety, for their mental stability, and all kinds of things. So they did go ahead and file orders that were approved by Lane County Judge barring Diane from having access to her kids.
0: According to James, there's a more complicated story behind why Diane's custody was taken away.
4: I know that they had um, police sitting outside the hospital room. Um, whenever we went to visit, it's like, you know, we were turned away. And so I don't know why. Well, I do know why, because it's real obvious why. And it's because they had an agenda that they had to defend.
3: There were armed uh, police outside the room, because if there was a shooter on the loose who had tried to shoot them once, perhaps that could uh, happen again. So they still had to take precautions. It wasn't a... A situation where they were dismissing any possibility that there was anybody else out there who could have intended this.
4: I mean, you have a little eight-year-old girl who was just brutally attacked. She had a stroke. Her sister is dead. And her brother is not even in the same hospital. There's two hospitals in the Springfield area, and her brother's at a different hospital.
0: Diane was apparently upset that the siblings were separated and felt that they should be in the same hospital.
4: And that was one of Diane's major contentions, is to put them together so they can be a family together.
0: One of the doctors had been given temporary guardianship over the children, and according to James, believed that Diane's custody should be taken away because she was trying to take Christy out of the hospital.
4: And she was trying to take Christy out of the hospital, but she was trying to get her to the other hospital, or vice versa, to get Danny to come to Christy's hospital so they could be in the same room and they could get better together. And that is, that's what I was trying to get at is the fact that they, t- they said that she's trying to get Chris, take Christy out of the hospital before it's time. Well, she was trying to take Christy out of the hospital to get her with her brother. So it was the day when she was due to have surgery that they ended up taking her rights away because she can't be at court on that day as her feelings uh-huh. so, to defend herself, basically. And if you're not there to defend yourself, then you lose. <laughs>
0: But one has to wonder what the real motivation was behind keeping the children protected from Diane, especially Christy. Christy suffered a stroke from blood loss and was unable to speak for months following the shooting. But aside from Diane herself, Christy was the only other probable witness to whomever actually did the shooting.
3: It took a long time for charges to finally be leveled against Diane. And I think that everyone knew that uh, her older daughter, Christy, who had survived. her? I think Christy was eight when she was shot. Her younger sister Cheryl, who died, was seven. And uh, their brother Danny was three. The police were very clear in saying, we haven't found a murder weapon yet. So the search went on for that and they spent hundreds of hours with divers deployed in the local rivers where Diane said that the shooting had occurred. She had pulled over right next to the uh, little Mohawk River And so the assumption was, well, she tossed the gun in there. Nothing was ever found. So it became really clear that if anything was going to develop, it's probably going to be short of any other kind of physical evidence. It's going to be on Christy getting well enough that she could tell what happened that night.
0: On the next episode of Happy Face Presents Two-Face, Diane sticks to her story that a bushy-haired stranger is the shooter, going as far as to record a play-by-play reenactment video for police. But a surprise past encounter with her ex-husband before the shooting could hold the evidence detectives need to charge Diane. Meanwhile, month by month, Christy, survivor and daughter of Diane, is getting stronger to share in court what really happened the night of May 19, 1983. Our executive producer is Ben Bolin. Melissa Moore is our co-executive producer. Maya Cole is our primary producer. And Paul Deccant is our supervising producer. Our story editor is Matt Riddle. Research assistance from Sam Teagarden. Featured music by Dream Tent. Happy Vase presents Two-Face is a production of iHeartMedia.